0: Well, good morning. Uh, somebody asked in between service, uh, why didn't you preach from the helm up there of the ship? Well, that probably might be a little distracting to do, so I'm not going to do that. Um, rather than, uh, than read all the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning up front, I'm going to read them as we come to them this morning. And so we've got three. I'd invite you, though, to open to the first one, which is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21. through 21. That's found on page 1018 of your Blue Pew Bible. If you want to open it up there and have it ready to go. Let me pray for us then as we get going. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We ask that you would send your spirit to enable us to understand your word, to delight in your word, to love your word, to be transformed by your word this morning, and that we would ultimately behold your son in all of his glory, and that he would be more beautiful and believable to us this morning. We pray through him. Amen. We're continuing our series uh, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, You might not have been with us earlier this summer. But uh, we've been looking at different aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry and it seems that from week to week we're constantly talking about how the Spirit is sort of the forgotten member of the Trinity, the one who doesn't get as much press. And that is, uh, in some ways, that, that is uh, by design of God, that the, the Holy Spirit is constantly uh, putting forward Jesus, constantly putting the Father forward. But we want to kind of foreground the Spirit's work. And so a couple words on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit... He is the third person of the Trinity. He is a person who is God himself. He's the full personal presence of God with us. He's not, uh, as we often think of, sort of the, the force from Star Wars in some way that's kind of acting upon us in some kind of mysterious way. That's not who he is. Um, he, he is God himself. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the connection between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The connection between how the Holy Spirit reveals God to us and ultimately results in this book that we look to for the whole of our life. Um, so we're going to uh, look at some of the important questions of that relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Word. But what I want to try and do is get at this from a really practical perspective from the very start. So here's where I want to go this morning. If, you wanna, if you're want if you a note taker, you can jot this down. Here's how the Spirit relates for us. We need the Spirit In order to make sense of the story of the Bible, and in order to make sense of the story of our lives. Let me say that again. We need the Spirit in order to make sense of the Bible, and we need the Spirit in order to make sense of our lives. This has everything to do with the Spirit's relationship to the Word of God. So why talk in terms of story? Why use that language? We've got two reasons for that. The first is, our lives are stories. That we ourselves are storied creatures, some have said. And what we mean by that is that we make sense of our world through the lens of story. Let me illustrate it this way. Kids and adults, I want to imagine that you're doing a puzzle, okay? Take a puzzle in the box, you dump the puzzle out, and you get ready to do this puzzle. What must you have to do that puzzle? You've got to have the picture on the box, Right? If you try to do a puzzle without the picture on the box, it's no good. It doesn't go very well, does it? Yeah, it's funny, too, to try to do that. Uh, What I want you to think about is that that box serves as sort of the story of that puzzle. And so the way a story functions in our life is that the story can make sense of the many puzzle pieces of your life and can weave them together in a coherent whole can tell you where you've been. It can tell you who you are. It can tell you where you're going, what's wrong with your situation now, how that could be overcome. Um, and, And I think another advantage of thinking of our lives as stories is that it emphasizes that you are not a passive observer of your life. You are a participant in your life. And I think the story language gets at that. But a second reason to talk this way is that the Bible that we have is presented to us as A story. In fact, its claim is to be the story, the only and ultimate true story of the whole world. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us what's wrong with us and with the world. It tells us what God has done about it and what he will ultimately do in the end of the story, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And, I, and so the, the way I think that we need to think about the Bible is being tied together as this one huge, all-encompassing story that is true. And this is really important because I think that, that we don't naturally think about the Bible in that way. If you were to just go out onto the street, ask people, what is the Bible? You'd probably get answers like, well, it's a rule book. Or maybe it's a how-to book that's going to that somehow show you how to live life in the best way possible. Um, it might be, and this could be more common within our walls here, that, that we would view the Bible as a set of theological truths that need to be pulled apart and systematized. And that it's kind of unfortunate that we've got the Bible the way we do because it all feels disorganized for us. Or it could be maybe that the Bible just is this ancient book that should be studied for historical purposes. But so so we don't naturally come to this as this grand story, but that's what it is. And Sally Lloyd Jones says this beautifully in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. We need to know this story. We must know this story. And I think one of the reasons that is so important is that as we begin to view the Bible as a story, and we view this story as the way in which we could actually come to know God, and it would transform our relationship with Him, it takes us, it pulls us in in a way that reading the Bible otherwise wouldn't. Stories draw us in in that way. They stir something in us, and this goes from being this religious book that you probably feel guilty about not reading regularly to to this book that sets forth the story of your life with God. And it's the only story that can make sense of your life. It draws us in in that way. When I was growing up, um, one of my and my brother's all-time favorite movies was the cinematic masterpiece from 1984, The Karate Kid. And we, we had it on VHS, and we wore the tape out on that. It was the regular movie for us to watch. Um, and every time, it drew us in in a big way, such that eventually my mom wouldn't let us watch it anymore, because inevitably it ended up in my brother and I doing karate on each other. No more. And that's what good stories do. Good stories pull us in. They, they show us that we're a part of this story. And that's what understanding the Bible as a story could do for us. So what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. That the only way that we could understand, embrace, and actually inhabit this story is by the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in, with, and by this word that we have. So I'm going to ask this question, and we'll answer it from these three passages. How does the Spirit make sense of the Bible and of our lives? So the first is this, and this will come from 2 Peter 1. The Spirit ensures us that the story of the Bible is true. We'll see the reason why in a moment. So look with me at 2 Peter 1, 19-21. So the huge claim of this passage, at a most basic level, is that the Bible is not the mere words of men. It is the very Word of God. And I realize that is a huge claim for some of us in this room. If you're here, you're not a Christian, maybe you're just checking out what the Bible is all about. I realize that's a big claim to make without substantiating it. And unfortunately, we don't have time now to ask the really important questions about the historic reliability of it, or to, to set forth all of what this means in terms of the inspiration of the Bible. But here's what I do want you to see and what we do have time for, and that's to see how the Bible describes itself. I want you to see how the Bible thinks about itself and how the authors of the Scriptures think about what their role is. And what you see is that the Spirit plays an integral role in this. The Bible doesn't view itself as just some ordinary book. The Bible views itself, as we just saw, as the very Word of God. And the reason for that has everything to do with the Holy Spirit's inspiration of it. So two quick things to notice from this passage. The first you see in verse 21 This prophecy, and it's referring to the Old Testament prophets, Peter's looking back to the Old Testament here, he says, didn't originate with the prophets themselves. Verse 21, it wasn't produced by the will of men. Instead, he says, it came from the Holy Spirit, as they were were carried along by the Holy Spirit, or literally born by the Holy Spirit. So we can say that because of the Spirit's inspiration of this book, the prophets actually became spokesmen for God. Now that doesn't mean that they became robots and fell into some sort of trance and were unaware of what they were writing. But what it means is that the Spirit so superintended their words that in all of the glory of their personalities, of all the uniqueness of their cultural moment and their situation, all of their history was brought to bear on this word and the Holy Spirit guaranteed that it was the very word of God. And so Paul can say then in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. And the author of Hebrews can say that this Word is living and active because of the Spirit's work by and with the Word. And so the second thing then to, to notice, and maybe a question that would arise is, well, if Peter's just talking about the Old Testament, what about the New? And to answer that, if you look over just to the next page of 2 Peter, to chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, you get this really... Helpful and kind of funny uh, phrase, actually. Where Peter talks about Paul's letters that have been written. And he says this about Paul's letters at the end of uh, verse 15. He He also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, then he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. But here's the point. As they do the other scriptures. So what Peter has just done is he's put the letters of Paul on the same level as the other scriptures. Paul's letters are scripture. And so in the very same way that the Holy Spirit carried along the Old Testament prophets of old, so have they superintended and carried along the New Testament apostles. Okay, So what's what's the point of all this? How does this matter for us? It matters in this way. The Bible that you have is reliable and it's trustworthy. It is the very word of God. and so it is the reliable story of the entire world. And so I, I know that many of us in here have been around church for a long time, and so to claim that the Bible's the Word of God can sort of just you know go over our heads and we just take it for granted. We've heard it so many times. I want you to just take a moment and try and and set that aside and ask yourself the question, how might viewing the Bible afresh as the very Word of God, which is the true story of the entire world and of your life, actually make a difference in how you would approach it? What would that do for you to say, okay, this is actually the way in which I would commune with God And I would learn about the truth of the entire world through this book. And I think if we took that seriously, we would say, I want to immerse myself in this. I want to to inhabit this book and this story and this life with God in all the ways possible. Because it's the only story that can make sense of our lives. And so that's that's why I want to apply that to us, is to immerse ourselves in it as best we can. Two quick ways that you could do that. One is to read broadly, and what I mean by that is to read large chunks of Scripture, to get a feel for the flow of the whole of the Bible and to learn this big story, or to even get a book like the Jesus Storybook Bible that can help you see the big picture of the Bible. So read broadly, but then also read deeply. Come to a passage and dig in to it. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. Prayerfully consider it. Take it in and chew it up and digest it. And get a good study Bible to help you do that. And we need to do both of those. And one will probably come more naturally to you than the other. But we need both. Read broadly and read deeply because this is your story. This is how we come to know the God of the Bible and to commune with him. And as we do that, you you can be confident that this is a reliable story. It is the one true story of the whole world. So the Spirit guarantees that and is the only way that we can be sure of that. But that doesn't always mean that we read it rightly. So here's the second point that I want us to look at. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 14. That's page 953, if you want to flip over there right now. Here's what I want us to see from this passage. It's that the Spirit helps us to read the story of the Bible rightly. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 14. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14 is critical for us. The natural person, that is the one who doesn't have the Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, big point here for us. We need the Spirit to rightly understand the Word of God. We will not understand it rightly, apart from the Spirit's work. And this makes sense. If God is the primary author of Scripture, then we need God to enable us to do this. And that's what verse 14 is saying. The one who doesn't have the Spirit, the natural person, is not going to accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? The reason for that is because sin did not just impact our outward behavior in sort of a narrowly moral sense as we think about it. The spirit, this, sorry, not the spirit, sin has, that's bad when you mix those two up, sin has had a bearing on the way that we think as well, so there is a moral component to how we think. We no longer view the world, God, and one another as we should. We no longer understand, we no longer view the Bible as we should. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, Psalm 19 says this, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That is a true statement. But now I want you to think about, about this. Is that and has that always been your experience when you step outside and look up into the sky? Are you naturally inclined to give God praise for the created order in this sort of unending way? Now, to be sure, every person, because we're made in the image of God, has glimpses of that. But that's not an ongoing experience for us. And it just shows that, 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 as Paul would say in Romans 1, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sin has impacted the way we read the story of the Bible. And it's impacted the way that we read the story of our lives, which means that we can misunderstand these stories. And the result is that we live in false. Stories about who we are and what our lives are about. And this, this could take all kinds of forms. I'm going to give us two. Some of us live a story that is all about ruthless comparison and competition, where all parts of your life are really a never ending competition. It's a competition for success, for recognition, for wealth in your work, whatever shape that takes. It could be that that, that it's a a competition to have the smartest, most well-behaved, most well-rounded children. And that that's where the, the competition lies for you. It could be that you're just competing to be known in your social circles. And it's a compulsive desire for you. So that life becomes for you in the end a story of a constant audition where all you're trying to do is get the part. You must end up at the top. Others of us live a story of fear, where all that you're trying to do is is sort of control your life and your surroundings to prevent harmful things from happening to you. And so maybe you keep people at arm's length because you think, if I get too close to this person, I'm going to get hurt. And so it hijacks all your relationships. It could be that, that you miss out on the real joy of your life because you're constantly fearful that you're going to screw it up. And fear dominates you, so that that's really the defining characteristic of the narrative of your life. These are all ways in which, in our sin, we can misread the Bible and misread our lives, then, as a consequence of it. Where we become the main focus of our stories, God is put to the side. There was this really interesting story a few years back on NPR about the study done... As to why people can't walk in a straight line when blindfolded. Interesting thing to study, right? So, what they did is they blindfolded these people and actually wrapped their whole heads in this big black cloth so they couldn't see anything at all. And then they had them attempt to walk in a straight line for an hour and they tracked them. And so, they've plotted it. You can look online of this map of what they had done. And literally, they walked in circles. I mean, they're these curly cues over and over again. Of this study that was done. And so here's what they say at the end of this article is incredible. They said Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point, like a mountaintop, a sun, or moon. Without a corrective, our insides take over, and there's something inside us that won't stay straight. That is us apart from the Spirit's work. We will misread the Bible, we will misread our stories. And so we will turn in on ourselves without this fixed point of God's Spirit working in and through the Word. And so what Paul says is that we must have the Spirit to understand the Bible and to understand our stories. That the Spirit in that sense takes the blindfold off and actually enables us to read it rightly. And so this is what Paul would say in verse 12. We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God that we might understand the things freely given us by him, and so the Spirit enables us to understand the Word, and we won't understand the Word apart from His work. So, if we can now read this story rightly, because it's a reliable story, the Spirit, who is also the Author of Scripture, is working in us to enable us to understand what is this story all about. This is our third and final point. We're going to look at 1 Peter one. If you want to turn there, that can be found on page one thousand fourteen of the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We're going to see this, that the Spirit shows us that the story of the Bible is all about Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So as a sort of baseline statement here of what Peter is saying. He's saying that from the prophets then to the apostles, what is in continuity here is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. They had been, as Old Testament prophets, wondering and searching how these predictions of this suffering Messiah were going to take place. They they knew God was going to pull through in some way on these promises. They didn't know how, and they never actually found out how. But what Peter says is that it's the Spirit that makes the connection here because it's the same Holy Spirit that was speaking in these prophets, he says in verse 11, is now the same Spirit who was at work in those who proclaimed this good news to Peter's audience. It's the same Spirit. And the central theme of this story, he says, are the sufferings and the glories, the subsequent glories of Christ. So a quick implication about this story. Your story is not first about you. Let me say it again. This grand story that's working itself out in this world is not first about you. It is first and foremost, according to the Bible, about Jesus. And it's the Spirit that enables us to see this. And this is exactly what happens in Luke 24. So in Luke 24, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead... And he's walking along to the road to Emmaus with these two guys who are despondent and despairing because they've just seen their Lord crucified and they don't see any hope of anything happening. They don't know yet about the resurrection. And so Jesus appears to these two men and they don't know it. They're walking along the road here and they can't know it. They don't recognize him until Jesus, by his spirit, opens their eyes and enables them to see who he is. And what he goes on to do in the rest of Luke 24 is to these two men and then to his disciples is to say that the whole of the Bible is about me. The entire Bible centers on and finds its fulfillment in me, Jesus. And so there are many ways that that we could apply this. I just want to say it this way. It means that Christ is the center of the story and apart from him, your story will not make sense. Try as you might to construct reality apart from Jesus. It will not make sense of your life and your experience of life. I want us to see uh, the way Peter applies this in this passage. And then I want to apply it that way to us as well. If you look at verse 11. What he specifically says about the Christ. About Messiah. Is that it's the sufferings of Christ. And subsequent glories that he wants to emphasize. Why does he do that? He does this because if you remember what's going on in 1 Peter, his audience is one that is facing all sorts of trials and suffering. Suffering is a repeated theme in this letter. And what his audience needs to know is that their their Savior, who had been crucified and had suffered immensely, wasn't a part of some big accident. And that the story of Jesus didn't end with his crucifixion and his suffering. There was more to it. There was subsequent glory that was his resurrection. And his audience needed to know that their story is the same story as they face suffering and heartache and pain. And that's what we need to see this morning as well. Obviously, with what's gone on in the last week in the shooting at Charleston, it is absolutely critical that we would see that our story does not end with suffering. And I think it's important to pause a little bit here and to be careful because Christians have not always done a good job of talking about suffering. What our knee-jerk reaction is a lot of times, and we've all experienced this and done this, is to jump right to Romans 8.28 and say, but all things work together for good. All things work together for good. And we sort of skip over entering into what is genuine grief And sorrow and mourning over the sin and brokenness and evil of this world. And we do that because it's it's horribly uncomfortable to sit with a person who is suffering and to not know what to say. To not be able to give any sort of real advice or solution to it except to just be with them and mourn with them and weep with them. The beautiful thing about your story and about this grand story of the Bible is that God is a God who suffers. That He's one who actually is is very comfortable in one sense entering into that brokenness and that evil. Not comfortable because it's okay, but comfortable because He is well acquainted with it. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is the God who stood at the tomb of Lazarus and wept and was angry over death. He's the God who has tasted death himself and that is what Peter is saying here that should come as a comfort to us that God is near to us who are mourning but he says something else as well he says that there is subsequent glory to be experienced and the beauty of this story is that death suffering and evil don't get the final word life resurrection and glory get the final word Suffering doesn't remain permanent. Glory does. And so the the Bible and our lives in the end are defined by this crucified and risen Savior. And that's the lens through which we must view our own stories as Darwin said earlier. What might this look like in conclusion? What this looks like when you embrace and live into this story that is possible only by the Spirit is that it looks like The families of those nine victims looking at the one who had murdered their families in this camera at the arraignment on Friday and extending mercy and forgiveness to them. It looks like not glossing over the horror of what they did to their loved ones, not excusing it in any way, but still being able to look into the face of this evil that had occurred, And to extend the only possible response if this story is true. Which is to extend this mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's what it looks like to inhabit this story. That's what it looks like to live into this story and immerse yourself in it. As we find our life in this crucified and risen Savior. And He invites you into that story. We enter into it by faith and the Spirit grafts us into it. Give yourself to that this morning. It is the only story that can make sense of your life. Pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the brutal honesty of your word and of your approach to the reality of life. Both the immense heartache, sorrow, sin, and evil, as well as the immense joy and hope that is very real because of the resurrection of your son. Lord, enable us to live into this story by your Spirit. We pray through Christ. Amen.